Okay, it's wonderful to have you guys here on a good Friday evening, praise the Lord. Um, there aren't really a lot of announcements. Uh, just a quick one is we are taking communion tonight, so if you haven't gotten your packet yet, please grab one from the table in the back, or maybe if you raise your hand, somebody will come around and give you one. Um, the other big announcement actually is uh, please remember that this Sunday we will be having our Easter Friend Day, so please invite out your friends and your family, and we're going to be meeting right out here. Um, so these doors here that you normally walk through are going to be locked, but the gate right next to it, that'll be open, and you're going to see um, people coming in. So just come in through the gate, walk all the way down along this building, and then you'll see the welcome table and then the park. We're going to be meeting in the park. So um, very excited to be worshiping together on Resurrection Easter Sunday. So that'll be right at 10.30, same time as usual. And then uh, finally, the last announcement is, um, what is the last announcement? <laughs> I just made that up. There is no last announcement. Praise the Lord. Okay, open up your Bibles to 1 John 3, 2 through 9. There is something else. I totally forgot. Okay, it's not that important. Okay, 1 John 3, 2 through 9. Praise God. If you're here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. 1 John 3, 2 through 9. Okay, this is God's word. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord God. This is a holy day. And Lord Jesus, as we just sang, as we just worshiped in our hearts, declaring, Lord, you died upon the cross and you shed your precious blood because we could not come to you, so you came to us and you made a way now for sinners like us to be made clean and righteous and able to now be in your presence. And that's why, Lord, you are here with us. Lord, we have nothing to do with this. Lord, you made the way. You came to us. And Lord God, now I, I pray, Lord, speak to us. Lord, let your word come into our hearts. Fill us with your faith, Lord God, to receive your word and make us more like you. So Lord God, we thank you. We praise you on this good Friday evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, praise God. Happy Good Friday. Today truly is Good Friday. But why is Good Friday called good? Have you guys ever wondered that? Well, there's a debate. People have different ideas why. Some believe it came from a corruption of the name God's Friday. So some people think it was originally God's Friday, but then it became Good Friday. But here's a more likely interpretation. 
Good was a common way the medieval church designated a day as holy, a day that they would observe. So for example, people in that time used to greet each other during Christmas by saying, good tide. I like that. Maybe this Christmas we can say that to each other. Good tide. It was a holy greeting. They even called the Wednesday before Easter Good Wednesday. So this isn't the only time they use good. And likewise, they started calling the day that Jesus died on the cross for our sins Good Friday. Why? Because it was the holiest day of the year for the church. The one day in the year that the church would meet and gather together to observe and meditate and worship Jesus for his death. The first time the name Good Friday appeared was in 1290. So this is a very old name. So I'm glad it's stuck. I like it. So Good Friday, happy Good Friday. So Good Friday is really Holy Friday. That's what the word really means. And that name couldn't be more appropriate because the holiest day that the world has ever seen was when Jesus gave up his precious life to save sinners just like you and me. There couldn't be a holier day than that. In fact, the earth itself shook because of the weight of that event. But Good Friday is not just a holy event in the past, but it was an event that continues to make holy people who look at the cross and put their hope and trust in what Jesus did for them. So it's not just a holy event way back then, but it is something for today that makes us holy today. The Bible does not talk about the cross as an artifact in the past, but rather, if you were to read through the entire New Testament, it talks about it as a present power to transform us now. The cross has the power even today to kill sin in our lives. So that's what we just read in 1 John. This is what I want to talk about today, and I think it really fits in the theme of discipleship that we're looking at this year. But how do we continue to grow in victory over sin and become more and more like Jesus? Well, the answer to that, a big answer, is the cross. So today, I want us to see the connection between Jesus' death on the cross and us putting to death our sin. That's the main point. I'll say it again. But I want us to see the direct connection between Jesus' death on the cross and us putting to death our sin. And that connection is important because it's there. And in fact, without the cross, we're utterly hopeless in defeating our sin. We won't kill our sin. In fact, the the sin will kill us. I like what John Owen, the Puritan, said. He said, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. It's a mortal death. Fight to the death. But thankfully, through the cross, we have God's divine power to kill the sin in our lives. Amen? But unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't seem to know that connection. They don't make that connection. You know, back in May 2010, Indiana's congressman, Mark Souter, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the story. Some of you guys are. But he resigned from his position. It was a big news um, in the media. But after confessing to this affair that he had with a part-time staffer, he resigned. And Souter was apparently a Christian. So the story broke. And basically, in more than a dozen emails to World Magazine, Souter reflected on his downfall. He was thinking about what had happened. And they published these emails. They reported on them. And in one email, he shared how difficult it was to keep uh, people in power in check. So this is what he said. Politicians and any top professionals are skilled manipulators and smooth with words. He wrote, holding us accountable is hard. I think that's true. And then in another email, he revealed the agony that he felt over this sin, over this failure. 
But he wrote, my sin, while forgiven, is greater in that God put me in a position of public trust. So I deserve whatever criticism I receive. And then he went on to write about what he did and how he felt in the midst of this affair. And listen, this is so interesting. But he wrote, as a Christian man, I prayed multiple times a day as he was having this multi-year affair. I sang hymns with emotions and tears, felt each time that it wouldn't happen again. I read the Bible every morning. Amazing. And then he went on, so how in the world did I have a torrid, which is an accurate word, many year affair? How could I compartmentalize it so much? And then finally, he wrote this in yet another email. He said, bottom line, however, is that the problem is sin. The problem is getting the will subordinate to the Holy Spirit early enough that the Spirit is not quenched. This is a politician. He was a Christian man. He is a Christian man. And when I heard that story way back when, two things really stood out to me. First, look at the agony of this man. But he sounds like a sincere Christian, doesn't he? He sounds like he has a real faith in God. But he was trapped by his sin, like an animal caught in a net. But he was utterly caught. And he's a clear example of how our sin nature is the greatest enemy that you will face in your life. Hands down. Now, is the threat of the world everywhere? Yes. Are the attacks of the enemy destructive? Absolutely. But more than those things, the greatest enemy that you're going to face throughout your life is your sin nature. The greatest threat to everything that you hold dear. I mean, look at Mark Suter. Look at all the things he lost. He lost his career, his family, his marriage. He lost everything that he held dear. Why? Because of his sin nature. That is the greatest threat. And why do I say that? Well, it's because your sin nature is always with you. I almost said amen. That's not an amen. But it's always there. You can't avoid it. Now, you can avoid the world if you want. You can isolate yourself. A lot of people did that during COVID. You cannot go online. You can just be alone in your apartment or your home. There are even times when Satan and his minions will leave you alone because they're not omnipresent. God is everywhere at all times, but Satan is not. And his minions are not. So there are plenty of times. Sin nature is always with you. It is as
One clear meaning for take away is the legal penalty of our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he took away the legal penalty of our sins. And why? It's because God says sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. This is what we just read in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And if you think back during the pandemic, uh, one of the most startling things that we saw were people breaking into stores in broad daylight, even on security cameras. I think a lot of us saw that, if not all of us. They broke into stores like Target, Walmart, Best Buy, shoe stores. I remember this one image of a, a teenager running out with stacks and stacks of expensive shoes, probably Jordans, I don't know. But they were just robbing stores blind, clothing stores. And these were people who were already under the pressure of lockdowns. And then when the outrageous death of George Floyd happened, this whole defund the police movement got launched, and there was this explosion of outrage among all these people around the country. And yes, some people were protesting peacefully out of a good conscience. They really believed in this cause, but others, they were just using that situation to take advantage, to grab whatever they could, to use it for their advantage. And in some cities like Portland, there were entire areas that were no-go zones. You guys might have remembered that, but even police wouldn't go there. And so in these entire areas, there were squatters and looters who camped out there, and they did basically whatever they wanted. They broke into stores, they destroyed public property, they graffitied the walls, they defecated in the streets. Okay, it was insane. And why am I mentioning all this? That's lawlessness. Okay, that's a picture of lawlessness. Now, people don't usually see their sin in those terms. They go, oh, I just have a little pride. Right? I, I just fell into a little bit of lust. I mean, who doesn't do that? But in God's court of law, your sin and my sin is lawlessness like the looters and criminals destroying a city. It's the same thing. It is just as obscene and outrageous and utterly beyond anything that you could imagine in God's court of law, the small sin in our hearts. It is lawlessness, the Bible says. And lawlessness has legal consequences. The Bible is clear. The legal consequence for sin is what? Death. It's death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And it's talking about physical death and eternal death, but all kinds of death. It is death. And people, when they hear this, you guys might have heard it growing up in the church. Some of you guys, maybe not. But people have a hard time understanding, accepting this. And yet, if you take a step back, our entire legal system operates in the same way that God's court of law does. So this shouldn't be that hard to understand. You know, back in seminary, one of my uh, professors was a lawyer and a theologian. So he would bring in a lot of examples from uh, the legal system. But he was a lawyer and a theologian. He studied a lot. And he explained God's judgment on sin using legal terms. And if you've ever uh, been around me long enough or been to the promise long enough, then you've heard me share this before because I've mentioned it many times. But my professor said, in our court of law, punishment is always measured out according to what? The degree of the offense, right? We understand that. So for example, if you steal a purse and you get a certain kind of punishment according to our laws, but if you kill somebody, the punishment is far greater. Okay, the punishment is measured out according to the offense. But he said, it's also dependent on something else. He said, in our legal course, the punishment is also measured out according to the value of the offended party. 
He's a lawyer. He knew what he was talking about. But it's also measured out according to the value of the offended party. And then he went on to explain in a very clear way. I'll never forget it. But he said, class, if you went outside afterwards and you stepped on a cockroach, what would happen? What's the penalty for that? Nothing. Why? Because cockroaches have no value in our society. Absolutely nothing. If, if, if anything, you're annoyed. <laughs> and then you go home. But then let's say tomorrow you're driving your car and then suddenly your neighbor's dog jumps into the street and you just, bam, right? You sped up. You're like, ugh, annoying dog. <laughs> and then you hit it and you killed your neighbor's dog. Now what's the punishment? It's going to be a lot more than stepping on a cockroach. You will get fined. You might even be forced to replace the dog. And then he said, let's say next month you go camping. And while camping, you notice that there are two bald eagles nesting in a tree high up there. And you take out your shotgun, bam, bam. And then you go pick up the two bald eagles and you roast them over a fire. Mmm, so yummy. But then the officials find out, now what's the penalty? You just killed the national bird <laughs> of our country and animals that are on the endangered list. You will get fined $200,000, $100,000 each per eagle. And you might even do some prison time. So do you see how the penalty just grows as you're offending more and more valuable things? And then he said, what if then you kill your neighbor's child with intent? Now what's the punishment? Now it's life for life. Now if you get convicted, you will get life in prison or maybe even the death penalty. Right? This is far greater than killing two eagles, killing your neighbor's dog. And then he said, now what if, as God's image bearer, you rebel against God, the very one who made your soul and gave you life? And because of your sin, he had no other way to save you from his legal consequence but to take your place upon the cross. And he died in your place as your substitute. And the Bible says your sin put him there. Your sin nailed him to the cross. And yet he did it to save you, but instead of gladly and humbly accepting this gift, you reject it to his face. You reject his eternal sacrifice by this eternal God, and then you continue on in your rebellion, in your lawlessness. Then what should the punishment be? And I remember at this point, the entire class was very silent. And he said, it'll be eternal death. Right? You've uh, offended an eternal God, an eternal God, and the punishment for that is eternal death. And so what does this mean? The punishment is always measured out according to the degree of the offense, yes, but also the value of the party offended. So now let me ask my question, but under this condemnation, what hope do we have? Okay, what can people under this judgment and wrath of God do? Okay, what can you do? What can I do? Do some good works? You go to church every now and then? Okay, work on our bad habits? Okay, what can we do? Nothing but cry out to a merciful God. Amen? Okay, that's all we can do. And this is why Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 says, We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know, right there, two words really stand out, but but God, but God. Those are the two most beautiful words in the New Testament, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. He saved us. 
So now because of Jesus' death in our place, God's wrath has no legal hold on us. We have been justified because of him. And justified is what? Justified is the exact opposite of condemnation, condemned. So when someone is justified, the handcuffs are taken off and they are set free. When someone is condemned, the handcuffs are put on and they are sent to death row. It's the exact opposite. But because of Jesus now, we are justified. It's the exact opposite of condemned. And so now why am I saying all this? Today's Good Friday. Well, here's the point. It's because we need to understand the only way we are gonna kill sin in our lives is if we receive this gift of forgiveness of sin, the legal penalty for our sins being removed, us being justified. You must receive that if you're gonna overcome sin. You know, John Piper, he says it like this. I think this might be one of his most powerful quotes. I don't really quote him that much, but this is one of his most powerful quotes. But he said, the only sin you can conquer in life is a forgiven sin. The only sin you can conquer in life is a forgiven sin. And you know what? For the believer, all your sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. Amen? They're all forgiven. Even the sins you haven't committed yet, they're all forgiven. So do you believe that? The only sin you can conquer in life is a forgiven sin, which means all your sins. So that means if you're a true believer, any sin that's gripping you right now, you can defeat it. You can kill it, amen? You gotta have that belief. You gotta have that hope. Because too many Christians are like Mark Suter and millions of other believers. You have a secret life of sin. You are trapped in that sin. You don't have any hope of defeating it. And you just live a life of quiet desperation. I know it because I was there before in the past. And so whether it's pride, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's envy, whether it's coveting, we don't have any hope of breaking free of these things. Apathy towards God. We don't know how to break free. We don't know how to be zealous for the Lord and have a pure heart. And yet I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, because of the cross, all your sins have been forgiven. And so all your sins can be defeated. So the only sin you can conquer in life is a forgiven sin. But why? Why are forgiven sins the only ones you can conquer? Well, I have different answers to this. These are my answers to this question, so you can blame me if you don't agree. Okay, don't blame Piper or anyone else. These are my answers. But here's why forgiven sin is the only sin you can conquer. First, forgiven sin is the only sin you can conquer because the devil no longer has legal rights over you in that sin. The devil no longer has legal rights. Now, when I think about the devil, he's kind of like the torturer in a medieval prison. But as long as you are in that prison legally, as punishment for your sins, the tormentor can do whatever he wants. He has legal rights over you. If you are chained to the wall and you have been convicted of some crime, then the torturer can come and do whatever he wants. But let's say the king has pardoned you, even at great cost to himself, because he knows you by name. Now, even if you were to walk into that prison, can the tormentor touch you? Absolutely not. Why? He no longer has legal rights over you. Absolutely not. He can try, but the king will swiftly come to your defense. Right? He has no more legal rights over you. And John pointed this out in our passage, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So that's the first reason I can think of why forgiven sin is the only kind of sin you can defeat. The devil has no more legal rights on you. Second, forgiven sin is the only sin you can conquer because God no longer condemns you for your sins. 
there is now no more condemnation for your sins. And you cannot defeat sin in your life if you are constantly crushed by the guilt of your sin. And so many Christians are like that as well. The picture I get is like the prison door has swung open. Jesus has paid for your freedom and you're just sitting in your cell with that open door and you're just weighed by all the guilt. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why cannot I not walk out? That's a good question. Why can't you walk out? And Christians are constantly crushed by the guilt of their sin. And if you're constantly crushed by guilt or gripped by fear that God is angry at you and about to judge you, then how are you going to have victory over that sin? There's no way. How are you going to defeat that sin and kill that sin? Any moment you think God's going to hit you and smack you on the head because of that sin. How are you going to rise up and conquer it? You won't. And I know that because I've been there and I've talked to hundreds of other Christians who have been there. You will never defeat it. This is why for Paul in Romans 7, after going on and on about his torment with sin, being defeated by sin, Romans 7, very uh, famous passage. This is how he ends that chapter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul said, having no more condemnation, that is the first ray of sunlight in this fight against sin. If you don't understand that, you have no hope in defeating your sin. You're still weighed down by guilt. You're gripped by fear. Oh my God, God's going to punish me. You need to understand, it is gone. No more condemnation. Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? I can't overcome my sin. The good things I want to do, I don't do that. The bad things I don't want to do, I keep doing that. Who can relate? Everybody here. Every single one of you. I know you because you're like me. You cannot defeat your sin until Jesus came and took the punishment and condemnation away. Amen? There's no more condemnation. So that's the second thing that I can think of. Why forgiven sin is the only sin you can defeat. Three, forgiven sin is the only sin you can defeat because you are now covered in the righteousness of Christ. You are now covered in the righteousness of Christ. See, here's the glory of the gospel. It's not that Jesus took away our sin only, but in the cross or through the cross, he also now passed on his righteousness to us. You gotta see both. It's not just, oh, my sins are gone. No, his righteousness now is on you. I like to call it his report card. His report card is now your report card. It has been passed on to you. It is that great exchange. And so now when God sees you, this is unbelievable, right? He's looking at now groveling Christians who are defeated by their sin, weighed down by guilt, sitting in that prison cell. That's how so many Christians feel. And yet when God sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness. He says, yeah, I know what you're going through. I know all the things weighing you down and all the things defeating you, and yet I say righteous. You are righteous. Martin Luther called this a passive righteousness. A passive righteousness. Why? Because you had nothing to do with it. It was just merely given to you. Jesus earned it and then gave it to you. It is a passive righteousness. And Luther said few Christians understand it and even fewer take advantage of it. What does that mean? You don't think about it day to day. You don't look to this passive righteousness to give you strength and encouragement to fight against sin. People don't think about it. They don't take advantage of it. They don't realize then when you battle your sin, you're not coming at it as a groveling sinner 
who needs to prove himself or herself to God. Oh God, I'm a good boy, right? God, I'm a good girl. Please don't punish me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do better. You're not coming to God. You're not coming against your sin like that. But rather you're coming as someone who's already been cleansed of that sin. You're coming as somebody who's already righteous in Christ. This would be like you taking a very, very big midterm while already possessing an A in the class. Totally different way to take a test, amen? You already have the final grade. You already have an A in the class and you're taking your final. So all of this is so vital in your fight against sin, brothers and sisters, because unless you truly understand, unless you truly take all the things that Christ earned for you on the cross and then bring it directly into your battle against sin, you cannot kill sin in your life. If the enemy is still tormenting you, if God's condemnation is still on you, if you're still trying to prove yourself to a holy God, you will never kill your sin. You're gonna be like Mark Suter. It's gonna continue to gnaw at you and destroy the foundations of everything you hold dear until one day it comes crumbling. You will never kill sin in your life with all these things against you. And that is why the only sin you can conquer is forgiven sin. Okay, you need to understand that. The cross has completely changed the battlefield against your sin, utterly. It is fundamentally a different battle from now on. It's a battle that you can win. Okay, you can be freed of sin. You know, I remember one time I was meeting with somebody, a brother, and he was just in this habitual sin. He could not break free of it. And I actually told him, you know what? I know how you feel because I used to be like you, but you can be free of that. And he just looked at me like I was talking Chinese. He was like, How? I'm like, you can be free of that. You're a believer, right? He's like, yes. You can be utterly free of that. You don't have to be enslaved to that sin. And yet Christians, they just don't understand. They don't seem to realize the resources that Christ has won for you. We sing songs, we come to church, and then we go right back to our defeated life of sin. And yet the cross has enabled us to kill sin. So the first way the cross has enabled us to kill sin it has, I forgot my first point. <laughs> he has taken away the legal penalty, amen. He has taken away the legal penalty of our sin. But that's not all. Okay, that was our longest point. So the next point is we're gonna go through much more quickly. But here's another reason why the cross enables us to kill sin. The cross made possible the new birth. The cross made possible the new birth. Look at 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now twice there in parallel statements, John points out being born of God. He says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning and then later he said he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So being born of God is very important. He mentions it twice, twice in one verse. And in the New Testament, practicing sin is much more than bad behavior. But practicing sin is evidence of being spiritually dead. Being spiritually dead. Now, of course, even believers fall into sin. But people who practice sinning, people who have a lifestyle of sinning, with no conscience, no conviction, that's not just bad behavior, but that's evidence that you're not born again. You're spiritually dead. And this is why John, when he's talking about being freed of sin, he talks about being born of God twice. You're born of God. Don't you know you're born of God? You're born of God. That's why you can't sin anymore. 
is because a lifestyle of sinning, practicing sinning, is more than behavior. It is evidence of death, spiritual death. And the evidence of spiritual life is the exact opposite. How do you know you're spiritually alive? You don't practice sinning. Again, some Christians, if I were to tell them that, they just, they just stare back at me. What do you mean? No, as a Christian, you don't have to have a lifestyle of sin. You don't need to be enslaved to habitual sin. You don't need a lifestyle of sinning. Why? Because that's what spiritual life is. You are spiritually alive. So spiritually alive people no longer have a lifestyle of sinning with no conscience or conviction from God. Now, of course, believers still fall into sin here and there throughout their lives. John himself said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So, of course, we still sin. But it's periodic, it's occasional, it's not a practice, it's not a lifestyle. And every time a true believer falls into sin, you know what happens? It's like being burned with a hot iron in your soul. It's like being seared with a hot iron. You can't stay there very long. You're going to be just like David in Psalm 32. David cried out, when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin to you, God, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and everything changed. So do you see that? David said, I had a tormented heart when I was sinning. Why? Why did David have this response to sin? I mean, people sin all the time, right? Well, it's because he has spiritual life. He was spiritually alive. And the spiritually living cannot touch sin very long. Even if it's for a season, eventually it needs to be cut off. Why? Because sin is death. And spiritual life cannot touch death very long. You know, one example I thought of is frostbite. I almost had frostbite one time when I was living in Nebraska, very cold over there. But when you get deep frostbite, your skin has been exposed to freezing temperatures for a very long time. And I read on on the Mayo Clinic website that deep frostbite is when the tissue turns black and hard as it dies. So the tissue begins to die. And if this frostbite is not treated, it can lead to amputation. The dead tissue needs to be cut away in order to preserve the living tissue. And we understand that, right? And, and this is why a corpse isn't bothered by dead tissue. It's because his whole body is dead tissue. So if you're dead, then dead tissue doesn't bother you. But if you're alive, then dead tissue becomes deadly. Because living things cannot be in contact with dead things. And so it needs to be cut off. And it's the exact same with believers in sin. This is why David said, I, I, I was groaning. My bones were wasting away. I was seared like with a hot iron, when I didn't confess my sin to you. I couldn't stay in that place very long. And this is why John said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, twice, you're born of God. Don't you know you're born of God? You're born of God. You're spiritually alive. And if you're spiritually alive, how can you have that death thing touching you very long? Yes, we all sin. Yes, it's going to touch us from time to time. We all go out and get frostbitten time to time. But if you stay there too long, eventually you're going to have to cut it off. Otherwise, it's going to begin to kill the rest of you. And if you're not bothered by it, if it doesn't affect you, then there's only one reason. You must not be alive. Only a corpse is not bothered by dead tissue. 
His whole body is dead tissue. So we can see how becoming spiritually alive through the new birth is absolutely vital. Here's another vital thing that you need if you're going to cut sin out of your life. You need to be born again. But what exactly is this new spiritual life? Well, in John 3, 1 John 3, sandwiched in between these two phrases, born of God. So in this one verse, he mentions born of God twice, right? Well, there's something right in the middle of that. He sandwiched something right in between born of God, born of God. And what he sandwiched there is the seed of God. The seed of God. You can go back and read it. He mentions the seed of God right in between the two born of God statements. And the reason why is because Bible scholars say the seed of God must be critical, a critical ingredient that makes us born of God that will help us overcome sin. So does that make sense? Seed of God is the critical ingredient that makes us born of God, which will enable us to overcome sin. So then what is the seed of God? Well, Bible scholars say if you keep reading on in 1 John, especially chapter 4, in verses like chapter 4, verse 13, the seed of God is most likely the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the seed we receive from God the Father. And this brings us to the third way the cross enables us to kill sin. Here's the third way. Number three, the cross made possible the gift of the Holy Spirit. So look at 1 John 3, 9. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. You have God's seed within you, so how do you keep on sinning and not be affected? You can't. You have God's seed. What is that seed? The Holy Spirit. So John sandwiched between the two born of God statements this key ingredient, the Spirit of God, which is the seed of God. And anyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Christ receives this seed. Okay, the Holy Spirit comes within you. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, please don't miss this, directly flows from where? The cross. Okay, why are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Why are you privileged to have the Holy Spirit in your life? It's because of the cross. It's because Jesus died on the cross that now God can give you his Holy Spirit. And once the Spirit comes within you, you are made alive. Amen? You're alive. And so suddenly, the sin in your life, you're like, okay, I mean, I still sin. I'm a human being, but I can't be there very long. I can't be there very long. Like David, my bones begin to waste away. It's like tissue on your fingertips that are dead and black. I got to cut that off. It's going to begin to damage the rest of me. And why are you like that? Because suddenly now you are alive. You're alive by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And once you receive the Spirit of God, that Spirit, the Spirit of God is a He, the Spirit is a person, He immediately goes to work on your sin. Amen? He immediately goes to work on your sin. And this is why when they say, when people that I talk to, when they say, you know what, I, I, I'm in this sin, but I, it's okay, and they just continue in that, the very first thing I think is, are you saved? Are you a true believer? Because I know how true believers talk. They go, oh, gosh, Pastor Roy, I struggle so much. I hate this sin. Right? I don't want this in my life. I mean, am I defeated by it every day? Yes, I am, but I hate it. In the depths of my heart, I hate it. That's how a true believer talks. Why? Because they're filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit begins to work on their sin immediately. But when a person goes, yeah, I know that's wrong, but, uh, you know, whatever. My immediate question is not, what's wrong with you? My immediate question is, are you saved? Are you saved? 
So the Spirit immediately goes to work on our sin. The Spirit gives us a deep love for Christ and hatred for sin. Do you know that God knows how to fight sin? Amen? But God knows that the only way that you're going to fight the fire of sin in your heart is with fire. See, you don't fight fire with duty. You don't fight fire with laws. You fight fire with fire. And so the only way you're going to overcome the passion in your heart for sin is to overcome it with a greater passion, a passion for Christ. And the Holy Spirit will give you that passion for Christ. You know, back when I was like a teenager and even in college, I had all kinds of sin in my life, and I still do. But a lot of that sin that I had in the past, I don't have it now. Why? Because over time, my passion for Christ overcame my passion for those other things. It's not because I'm spiritual or holy or better. It's just I don't know what happened. Just that passion for Christ overcame my passion for those other things. And little by little, they just fell away. And God did it. God knows you fight fire with fire. So the Spirit does that. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Spirit weakens the pull of sin upon our hearts. The Spirit empowers us to resist sin. The Spirit increases our faith in Christ whenever we hear the word. And over time, the Spirit ultimately kills sin in our life. He does it. He will kill sin in our lives. So the Spirit is always at work in these ways, but we have to open ourselves to his activity. You know, Romans 8.13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, how do you kill sin in your life? By the Spirit. Open yourself to the work of the Spirit in your life. But how do you do that? Well, you're going to like this because we've been talking about it. Habits of grace. <laughs> you, through, you do it through the habits of grace. These are the spiritual disciplines, of course, things that we habitually practice in the Christian life. We habitually and regularly do these things to put ourselves in the path of God's grace. We're talking about read the word, pray, fast, worship, fellowship with other believers, spend time alone with God, give. These are the habits of grace. So these things in and of themselves cannot kill sin, but they will do one thing though. They will open you up to the Spirit's work in your life and he will kill sin. You can never kill sin in your life, but the Spirit will when you open yourself up as you practice the habits of grace. So briefly, let me just give you one example. This is something that I've shared before, but it's very, very practical and I believe powerful. But in, in the New Testament, the word of God is called the sword of the Spirit, amen? It's called the sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God actually has a weapon. He carries it around and it's called the word of God. And what do you do with the sword? You kill things, right? You kill things with the sword. So the Spirit of God carries around this sword called the word and he uses that to kill things. What is he gonna kill? Your sin. He will kill your sin. How though? Well, let me make it even more practical. In the moment of temptation, you have a choice. And that choice is not to sin or not sin. See, if you make that your choice in the moment of temptation, then you know what you're doing? You're putting all the weight and responsibility upon your willpower. It's all dependent on your willpower. All of your trust to be victorious is in your willpower. And I'm here to tell you, and you already know this, you will fail. Your willpower will fail every single time. Maybe every now and then you'll have victory. But on the whole, you will fail. So your choice in that moment of temptation, when that passion, when that flare of temptation grips you, that burn, right, is not to sin or not sin, but you know what it is? It's to believe or not believe. That's your choice. Your choice is to believe or not believe. And if you make that your choice, 
You've moved now your trust from your own willpower to now the Spirit's power. You've made that switch. Now your trust is in the Spirit's power. But believe in what, though? If the choice is to believe or not believe, then believe in what? Believe in the Word of God. Specifically, the truth of God, the promises of God in the Word. But believe in the Word of God. So let me just make this very, very practical. So when you find yourself in the burn, the temptation, the heat of temptation, don't try and will yourself not to sin. You're going to fail. But instead, go to the word of God and bring to mind verses. Recall verses and passages and promises and truths. And then choose to believe in that word. And when you do, you know what will happen? The spirit of God is going to pick that up like a sword. It's called the sword of the spirit, right? He will pick it up like a sword and then he will go to your sin and slay it. He will kill that temptation. And I've experienced this in my life. That temptation suddenly just begins to die. It dies in your heart. Why? Because I open up the word and I begin to read and I believed what is said and that temptation just died. Now, does it work every time? No, it's dependent on my heart how willing I am to receive and believe in the word. But as I do, the spirit will slay your sin. So for example, if you're being tempted with lust, in that moment, as you're feeling the heat of lust, don't try to will yourself out of it. You're gonna fail. There's no way. Mark Suter, he had a multi-year affair as a Christian, singing hymns, reading the Bible. You're gonna fail. But rather, Bring to mind the word of God. Go to passages like Galatians 5.20. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, read passages like that. If you give into that sin habitually and it becomes your life, you will die. And the Bible says you have no guarantee you're going to be in heaven. No guarantee. Psalm 16:11 You make known to me the path of life in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures. Okay, why are you tempted with lust? Cuz you you're tempted with pleasure. God says I'm offering a greater pleasure. Pleasures forevermore. Okay, read passages like that. And so as you read passages like that and recall them to mind, you believe in them, you receive them, and then as you do the spirit picks up that word and kills your sin. Amen. He will kill that temptation of lust. And so you won't click on that website. You're not gonna look at that porn. You're not gonna begin to have that emotional affair with that person at work. You're not gonna do those things. The spirit will kill that sin in your life. If you're being tempted with anxiety, maybe it's anxiety about paying your bills. Financially, you're worried. Maybe you're anxious about the future. And this anxiety has a hold on you. You can't shake it. Don't try to will yourself out of that. You're gonna fail. How are you gonna will yourself out of anxiety? But rather, go to the word of God, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, reap, or gather into barns, and, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? If God does that for birds, I mean, Jesus' argument is rock solid. If God does that every day for birds, why are you so worried about your future and how you're going to pay your bills and what you're going to eat today? Okay, bring that word into your heart. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, every necessity in life will be given to you. 
Recall that word. Receive that word. And as you do, the Spirit picks up that word and just slays that anxiety. Amen? Brothers and sisters, if you never learn this, you will be enslaved to your sin until the last day of your life. As a Christian, which is very, very sad, that's like a person sitting in a jail cell with the door wide open and you spent your whole life inside that cell. Please don't do that. Come out of that cell. Learn how to conquer your sin. So God gave us his spirit to kill the sin in our lives. This gift flows from the cross, amen? It flows from the cross. Get okay, two more. These I will just run through. They can be entire sermons, but we're just gonna touch on them. Number four, the cross made possible union with Christ. Union with Christ. Look at verse six, 1 John 3, verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now this verse sounds very similar to something else John wrote. John, in another book, John's Gospel, he said this, John 15:4, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So John loves that word abide. He uses it a lot. So here in John 15:4, John mentions God's pruning. That is important in growing in holiness. God will prune you. But pruning is not the most important factor in growing in holiness. But rather, it's nearness to Jesus. Nearness to Jesus. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus only mentions pruning once, but he mentions in me, abide in me, nine times in the first seven verses. So nine times he says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And Jesus' presence is the key factor in defeating sin. So we've touched on, on this at various points, but Jesus' presence with the disciples was absolutely vital if they were gonna become true disciples and grow in maturity, but it was Jesus. He, Jesus did not offer textbooks or curriculum, but he was the curriculum. He offered something far better, himself. And so the goal of spiritual formation is to become like Jesus. He, Jesus is the model of ministry. Jesus is the knowledge of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the power of the kingdom of God. And so nearness to Jesus is the victory that we will have over sin. Nearness to Jesus is everything. So there is no transformation or victory over sin without Jesus. Again, this is why Jesus said in John 15, nine times, abide. He said, abide in me, abide in my word, abide in my love, abide. And abide simply means live with Jesus. Continue with Jesus. Remain in Jesus. I would add to that, believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Know Jesus through his word. Obey Jesus. Obey his commands. If you do all of that, you are abiding. You're abiding juice. And that is gonna be another key piece to victory over sin. Okay, you gotta have Jesus. Number five, the last one. The cross offers a lasting hope in Christ. A lasting hope in Christ. It says in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes, meaning hoping in Christ coming back, who has his hope purifies himself as he is pure. I'll read that again. Anyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. And when John said that, he wasn't making a sentimental point to just kind of bring Jesus and hope into his passage, but rather he was offering one final key ingredient in having victory over sin. But hope in a future certainty is an iron fortified defense 
against present temptations. I know that's a weird sentence, but I'll say it again. But hope, it sounded better when I was writing it. (laughs) I'm like, that sounds kind of weird when I said it. It was better when I wrote it. Hope in a future certainty is an iron fortified defense against temptation. Okay, what do I mean? Well, are you a single woman here today who wants to be married one day to the man that God has chosen for you and you're keeping yourself for that godly man that God has for you? That's a future hope, right? Well, if you have that future hope, what will that do for you in the present? You will not just date any, any guy that comes along, right? You're not just gonna sleep with any guy. Why? Because you have this future hope for that man that God has chosen for you in the future. Okay, are you a student longing and hoping for a law degree or a doctor's license one day? If you have that future hope, then what are you going to do in the present? You're not going to go to drunken parties. You're not going to be lazy. You're not going to get involved in trivial pursuits. But rather, you're going to stay focused on what you need to do. And you will avoid all these temptations. So what is that? That is a future hope that purifies you in the present. And so this is exactly what John is saying. If you have this hope for Jesus one day returning and then glorifying you in heaven, to be with him forever and ever. If your hope is truly in that, then every day when you wake up, yes, you're gonna stumble, yes, you're gonna fall, but on the whole, you're going to keep yourself pure. You will be purified by that hope. And it will be an iron fortified defense against temptation, amen? So we're coming to a close, but I wanted to go back to that politician, Mark Suter, but he said in the midst of this huge scandal he was in, he said, bottom line, the problem is sin. The problem is getting the will subordinate to the Holy Spirit early enough that the Spirit is not quenched. And when I read that, I said, yes, I agree with that. But I would add to that, don't forget where that power and gift of the Spirit flows from. Because if you were to read those words again that he wrote, he's still putting the emphasis where? His own will, right? He said, the problem is sin. The problem is getting my will subordinate to the Holy Spirit early enough that the spirit isn't quenched. So he's still depending on himself, okay? The problem is I didn't do this. I should have done this. And so I would say to Suter and to all of you, yes, that's true. But don't forget where that power and gift of the spirit flows from. It flows from the cross, amen? Where Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished. He said, it's done. There's nothing more to do in your battle against sin. The victory has already been won. And so now, even submitting your will to the Spirit and killing sin, you don't do that alone. You do that through the victory Jesus already won. You just have to keep walking in that victory day by day, day by day. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we just come before you today, Father God and Lord Jesus, on this Good Friday, Lord, I pray and ask that in some way, somehow, Lord, that you would make these glorious truths like the mountain peaks in Colorado. We drove out there one time, saw the most majestic mountain peaks, the Rocky Mountains. These truths can sometimes seem like that, just distant, majestic truths far away. But Lord God, make these truths realities right here. Make them real right here. 
so that we can begin to live victoriously and be set free from the sin in our lives. Lord, everyone will stumble, everybody will fall, but the righteous man and woman gets up seven times. And in the end, they land on the shores of heaven completely free. No more sin. The victory is complete. And so, Lord God, I pray and ask, oh God, that you will help each and every one of us here to understand this, that that victory flows from the cross. Every resource we need to kill sin in our lives flows from the cross. It is not within us. Too many Christians just look to themselves. They just look to their own willpower. I gotta beat this. I gotta somehow figure this out. No, you don't. You will fail every time. Lord, help us to begin to look to you. Our victory was won on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. Let's declare these truths back to God. You can pray them back to God as we do every, every worship service. I just want to spend a moment in the presence of God, responding back to God.
says that communion is an act of faith, but when you take it, you're proclaiming, basically saying, I believe again, Jesus, that you died for me. I believe and receive again that your body was broken, your blood was shed for me. And so the Bible says, how can somebody do that and at the very same time be in rebellion to God? So the Bible says, don't do that. You're going to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So if you don't feel prepared to take communion on Good Friday, you don't need to. Nobody's going to point you out or make you embarrassed. But if you want to take communion, then I want to encourage you, let's spend some time right now confessing our sins before God. Let's say, God, please cleanse me. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've rebelled against you. But Lord, your grace is enough. Please cleanse me. Please cover me. So let's do that for a moment, and then we're going to take communion together. 